All right, so I'm now joined by Taj Miles, who you probably know best from his turn as Simba in The Lion King, his role in Small Axe, and probably you're best known for your role as Marlon in Death in Paradise. Taj, how you doing? Not too bad, but how you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Thanks for doing this. No problem. I'm happy to be here. My fiance is a massive fan of Marlon, so she's very happy that I'm talking to you today. Oh, I'm really interested in her. <laughs> her favorite moment came in a, a recent episode. You're in the back of the car, mm. and you say you say to the guy, creepy, right? Yeah. I must have rewound that moment about 50 times. That's become, yeah, that's become, I think, a lot of people's favorite Marlon moment. Even when I read it in the script, I was like, this is a moment that even I was like, it's in my, it's in my top five so far in the series. So... What's it like filming over in the Caribbean? It's everything you can expect, man. It's, it's, it comes with, obviously, its benefits. It, there are some downsides to it too, but much more benefits to to anything else. You know, it's, it's a beautiful location. It's sunny. The people are lovely. Anywhere you could think of filming in the Caribbean, it's exactly that. But then obviously, it's really, really, really hot. Yeah. And um, yeah, some of my costume isn't too bad. The, the police shirt is quite thin, but then you have people like Don had his you know his commissioner get up you got ralph even with his blazer so it does have its challenges like any job without but at the end of the day when you just think about you know filming in the caribbean when i could be filming somewhere in cold gray east london it's, you kind of forget about the downsides very quickly you get like a lot of um storms and stuff on the area what are they like they kind of it varies we it was actually quite a very we called it a wet season last year series four because it was really really rainy a lot like it's the most rain i've ever had since i've been there in my three years um there was like a partial storm but it lasted like a weekend so it wasn't too bad but there have been years where they've had like hurricanes and and stuff like that they'll be tight if we've had a lot of rain and if it's safe we'll continue to film but then if we get you know people telling us i mean a lot of people in our french crew have been in the job for a long time and they live on the island so they know what's safe and what's not safe and they will always give us the, the right instructions. So we've had a time where we've had heavy wind and we're filming by a harbour. So we say, you know what, we're going to shift the schedule around and go from the police station and come back when it's safe. But most of the time, if it rains, you just got to stop filming and wait for it to stop. But in the Caribbean, when it rains, it really rains. So it's not like you wait for 30 seconds. You sometimes have to wait for 30 minutes for it to stop raining because of sound and costumes, all that kind of stuff. But again, it's, it's, it's pretty similar to filming anywhere else. Around the world. If it rains, you've got to stop. But it's Caribbean rain. It, it takes so much longer to stop than it would anywhere else. But also, you're in the Caribbean, so you kind of just go, ah, it's fine. You know what I mean? You sit down and look at the scenery and you kind of forget about the rain quite vividly. Yeah. I mean, does it, how different does the item look on TV to what it looks like in real life? It's, it's pretty, what you get is, is is what we get. It's pretty, pretty similar. Maybe like the animals are a bit different. Like they yeah. did large drone shots in the, in the show where you get that of the full landscape of the island, which you'd only get obviously from a drone shot. But so that the color, the bright blue skies, the the greenery is pretty similar. It's exactly the same. I can't even when I watch it on screen, I'm like I can see maybe where they might have done a bit of a color grade here and there, actually wood for TV, but it's not like they put like a massive filter over it to make it look like the Caribbean because you don't really have to. Yeah. What's it like? Because you're from Hackney, right? Mm -hmm, yep. I used to live in Dalston. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What's it like acting in an accent that's not yours? It's it's to me it's not too hard because my my family so my nan's Dominican. Granddad's Jamaican, dad's St. Lucian, so I'm, I'm Caribbean at heart and I, I've lived around my grandparents for pretty much all my life and they both have their heavy Dominican and Jamaican accents. And even my mum being first generation, she'll put on the accent sometimes she's telling me off or something. It's, it's, a, it's a Caribbean thing, if you're telling somebody off, you put on the accent. So I've been hearing it all my life. So when it comes to doing it, I usually do it to take the mick out of people or, or to be funny. So when it came to doing it in a serious setting where I have to play a character, 
it wasn't hard to do, but it was hard to just keep it on for a lot of the times. Like, I, I always say on set, if I get asked to improvise at any moment, I'm going to start sweating because that's, that's a different side of doing the acting. If I get lines and I can read through it and just picture how it's going to be said, then it's fine. But it wasn't too difficult. Every now and again, it, it gets a bit harder. Once we, like, we had to do ADR to start of the year and we, we wrapped, I say, two or three weeks ago. So I hadn't done the acting for that long. So when I had to do that first line, it did take a bit of a push to get into. But once we're there on set, it's like second nature almost. Yeah, an actor friend of mine said that when you're doing another accent, shouting's the hardest part. Yes, it is. Anytime you're not in like a neutral setting or speaking, it's very really difficult to to hold the accent because you start to go to raw emotion, then your raw accent starts to come out. But just practice, just it's practice. What's your background with acting? Because you've been acting since you were a kid. So how did you get involved with that? Yeah, so I've, I've been acting professionally since I was seven years old. I went to a drama school called Anifurantini in Hackney. It was just a Saturday school. Like my mum, I just had too much energy around the house. My, dad, my granddad told my mum he needs to do something positive, otherwise he's gonna do some foolishness. So, whether it's football, whatever it is, just put him into something, and that's what she sent me. And I don't know how long I was there for. I don't think I was there for that long. So I got my first audition, which was for Oliver in a Musical, and I managed to to book that. And then I went from doing that to what I've been at did The Lion King next. Then I did Matilda. Then I did I mean the Detectives at the National Theatre. Then I did Bugsy Malone, and then that's kind of when my Around that time was when I kind of started to, because I never, truthfully, I never really liked the singing and dancing element of performing. It was fun, but all the other kids went to like Sylvie Young, Italia Conti, all these like very well-trained schools. And I was going to an academic school. The only training I really got was when I went into rehearsal. So the singing, dancing, it wasn't for me. So I really wanted to do acting. So from there, I did a TV show called Class Dismissed for CBBC. Did three seasons of that. And then, yeah, from there, small laps there in paradise. But... Yeah, I've been doing it since from a very, very, very young age, performing, but acting since the age of like probably 13. Excellent. So you were in Small Acts, which is made yeah. by Steve McQueen. Yeah. He's a fantastic director. What's what's he like to work with? He was brilliant. I was so, so, so scared, even before I missed that concert, because the story of me getting that role was my uh, part-time drama school, Identity. Um, we had like a little showcase at the time of my class, and they invited cast and directors and whatnot over to watch it. Gary Davey, who cast this one that I was watching, and he basically just, he called me up for a meeting first saying, you know, I've got this, I'm, I'm casting the Steve McQueen show, and he just wanted to get to know me, he didn't, didn't know what character I could play yet. So we had that meeting, he spoke initially, kind of what kind of what we're talking about right now, just a brief discussion about me and, and my life. Then like a week after, he said, yeah, cool, um, I've got a character I think you can play, you're going to have a meeting with Steve in a week. I said, what do you mean meeting with Steve? He usually goes cast director, maybe another cast director meeting, then director. He goes, no, 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 no. I think I think you pretty much got it. I think it's, it's yours to lose. I think I think you're you're fine. And Steve usually trusts trusts my opinion. So if I say to him, this is the kid, he'll listen to me. I said, okay, great, nice. I guess it's all it gets all about me now. But he was lovely. Honestly, he, it's Steve McQueen. So I was intimidated because we know he's highly, highly respected. But the moment you step foot in that room and he understands that your colleagues, he treats you like that. He doesn't treat you as you know, I'm an Oscar winner, you're a novice. He goes, We're working together and we're on the same level at this point. So it was a collaboration from the moment I stepped into that room. He's asking me, what do you think? How do you think we could do this? Da, 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 da. Um, and on set, is no different. It's just no different. Especially for something like Small Acts, where it was like a passion project for him. He just wanted the best or whatever it was. So there's one scene I had where my character gets um, beat up by the police and then my family comes to get me in the police station. And originally that scene had, like, I think, a page of dialogue, but it's a lot of action. Like my mum is, is throwing things around. They're grabbing me. And we rehearsed it. You just couldn't find where the lines would go. And Steve just said, forget about the lines. I don't really care about the lines. I know I wrote it, but if the lines aren't working, just 
show up the true emotion, just scream and shout. That's what we did. And we said, are you sure? And he was like, listen, I don't really care what you say as long as the emotion is the same and it has the same effect on the audience. That's all I care about. But I don't think a lot of directors would do that, especially if they wrote it too. Well, and I want him to stick to the script and do what they wrote, but he didn't really, as long as the true emotion of what he was writing comes out on screen, that's all he cares about. But yeah, it's an experience I, I, I will never forget for as long as I'm here on the surface. Always one of the things that really changed me where I said, yeah, acting with someone like him and working with someone like him is why I want to do this. It's, it was amazing. How do you get into that heightened emotional state when you've got to do a big scene like that? Yeah, that that was tricky. That was one of the first, that was the first scene I did as well in Small Acts. I think I shot for about maybe a week and a half, two weeks in total. And my very first day was that scene. I was asking myself that question because I've never done that kind of scene before. So I was like, how the hell do I even get into this, this mindset? I just had a happened to me before in my personal life, so I can't go back to a moment in my past. I didn't really know, but it's really who I had around me. I had, I had Sean Parks, who played the lead character. I had Letitia Wright. And I had Michelle Green and then I had Steve McQueen, all people that have been working in the industry for a very long time and done these kind of things before. So I was kind of just sitting there and, and just soaking up their energy. And one thing I clocked was just silence. Everyone was just kind of sat in silence in between rehearsals or whatever. And I think they were kind of just getting themselves into the psyche of their character and just feeling the mood a little bit. So I kind of just did what they were doing and kind of just started to, I don't know, just kind of just, just soak up their energy because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't I really know what to do. So I was just like, I feel like these people are just really, really getting into their characters. I think I should be doing the same thing. So I just, I just sat there in silence and just let their energy soak into me. And it worked. It, it worked. It was a amazing. When I watched it on the screen, I was like, wow. It was a really, very, very powerful scene. So is there a different process to say acting on stage to acting on screen? Yeah, 100%. I think stage, the one thing I've always loved about theatre is you have one chance. You might happen every night, but you have one chance that night. You can't do it again. If I'm on screen, I can do a take just to try something new. Like I might say, I'm just trying to spoil it and it's gonna work. But once I hit cut, go to the director, yeah, I tried something, can we do it again? You can't do that on stage. If you try something and it doesn't work, that's the audience, that audience that watch you are gonna have that one memory of a performance and they're gonna run with it. So you kind of have to have your mind made up. I feel with fear, some might say probably disagree and say, no, they do that all the time. But for me, it's like with fear, or you have to have your mind made up of what you're gonna do every single night. Which is difficult for me because I do like to change stuff on the day and, and play around with my character. I'm playing around with, I don't know how I'm using my voice or what I'm playing with around the set. And fear is a bit more difficult, especially with musical fear. You, there is no room to play around because everything has a cue. Every single line of music or stage direction or choreography has a lighting cue and a sound cue. So you can't play around at all. So with a screen, yeah, there's just more room to mess about and play and just know you've got a second chance if it doesn't work. I need to ask, because Don Warrington is one of my favorite actors. I, I, I think he should be in everything. So what's he like to work with? He's amazing. He's any, everything you think Don Warrington would be. Like he's, I remember when I, when I first joined the show, that was a one person I was almost scared to meet. I was like, I don't know, what's, what's he going to be like? But he was really, really, really cool. The first thing, like, we just start talking about football, this random stuff. But then on, on set, he, he'll be serious. Like he'll be into his character. He'll be very serious. He'll be focused. But then if you want to go up to him and have a laugh and start talking about random stuff and just have a joke, he'll do that too. Like, he's, he don't, you don't have to be scared being on Don Royalton and set thinking I don't want to mess up with him because he'll come and have a chat. He's just like an encyclopedia of, of acting and just, just working that, just watching him. You always pick up on something new that will just change your entire career and how, how you work. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, he's magnificent. I used to be on nodding terms with him in the morning. <laughs> I used to work on the railway and I was at Surbiton Station. I think he used to live around that way. So yeah. him, we would just nod in the morning. I never spoke to him. I was always a little bit too intimidated. <laughs> he would have said hello, definitely. 
So what's it like? Because the cast chains a lot. So does that mean there's kind of like this kinetic energy all the time? Yeah, I think it's it's a weird dynamic because we're there for, well, six months at a time. Before Series 10, it was five because there was no Christmas special at the time. But once you get the Christmas special, it's a whole nother block added onto the shoot. So right now it's about six, six months, maybe six months in a bit. So in those six months, you become a family. Like you kind of become, especially when we were there during the COVID time, we were in a bubble, we couldn't really go places and just kind of integrate with the island because we had to make sure we stayed safe. If we did do anything, we kind of stayed within our little bubble because we all knew we were tested twice a week, so we were fine. So yeah, when someone leaved that when Josephine left, it was really sad because I'd, I'd known her for a year, around then, a year and a bit, we were on series 10, and obviously she did half of series 11, so it was, it was really, really sad. But even Chantal, Chantal had literally just got there, and in those space and time with Jodie, they became really, really, really close. So it doesn't really matter how long anyone has been there, once you're in that bubble, yeah automatically you're a family no matter how long you've been there so yeah it, it is always sad when someone leaves but when someone joins in like when Ginny came back it was like yeah you're now you're part of the family there's no like oh that's the new girl or when Chantal came that's the new girl you're a part of the family it's like you've been here for a year it's actually me when I joined as well even though they were where Toby was leaving he was been a part of the family for how long it's like it doesn't matter if you leave and you join in once you get here you are a part of this furniture that's been around for 12 years and that's how it's going to stay Oh, that's, that's great to hear because I'm a fan of the show and like I said, so is my fiance. She got me into it because she was like, you like Doctor Who, right? This is the Doctor Who of detective shows. <laughs> what do you mean? It's just like every few years the cast changes and it becomes a new show. So I was like, all right. And I'm very true. I thought about that. She's actually very, it's a good way to see it. She's very true. So I got into it. So there's also a spinoff now. Do you think that Marlon could ever turn up in Beyond Paradise or maybe even get his own show? I hope so. When I first heard about um, Beyond Paradise as a spin-off, because I'm a massive, massive Marvel fan, so the first thing I thought of was, oh my god, it's a, I don't know, Death in Paradise multiverse or something like that. It's a cin- like Red Planet cinematic universe or whatever, and I was like, okay, so they could do this, they could do a, I don't know, a, we saw in a Christmas special, there was, um, we saw Young Cell, and I was like, oh my god, they could do a period drama about Cell. And, uh, I would watch that. And, yeah, honestly, so that's, that's so yeah, the first thing I thought was, oh my god, how, how can this happen? Can Marlon turn up in this? Can this person come here? He didn't make another Marlon spin-off and then I turn up in the... So yeah, my mind started going mad. So yeah, there's there's many, 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 many ways that I'm sure the producers know what they're doing. They've got it all sussed out already. What's your favourite Marvel film? Honestly, my favourite Marvel film is, is Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Mm-hmm. It's the only Marvel film that's actually made me cry because it ends. Rocky Raccoon's one of my favourite characters. And the ending where, um, you know, Yondu dies and they have the Ravagers funeral. And it's, it's, it's him realising that even though he's been mean to people, that they still love him. And if you see him crying, I couldn't help but cry. So because of that ending, it, it's up there. But there's also like Infinity, you can't not say Infinity War is one of the best mm-hmm. films to be ever made. There's an unpopular opinion. I love Iron Man 3. Not, not a lot of people rated that when it first came out, but I love Iron Man 3 as a film. That direction it went with, with, with the villain, I think it, I thought it was sick. But yeah, yeah, there's, that's a hard question. I've, I've probably got like a top seven Marvel films that could all be number one, depending on what time you ask me. So it's a tricky one. So you've also got a podcast, which I've been listening to, really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did that come about? So that, that was, that, that idea came about when I was shooting my first series, because I had the channel already. It was called, I, I was called, I think, De Niro Visual, which is like my middle name and visuals. It was meant to be like my own like personal production company where I could write my own short films and put them up there. I used to do like a monologue series where I get some of my friends that do spoken word and it write something and I'd film it and edit it in like a music video style and put it up there. When I finished my first series of Deadpool Paradise, I was like, cool, 
because before it was difficult to film anything because I didn't have that much money. I was like, I can't go and buy a brand new camera. I can't hire out a space. I was like, oh, I made a decent amount of money. How can I put this money back into what I want to do, which is the filmmaking side? So I just started writing ideas of how I can just up my quality. And I had short films. I had podcasts. I had loads of things. But the podcast was actually at the very bottom of my list. It was just an idea that I just had. There was loads of other things above it. When I got back, I think it was January 2021, London was in lockdown. So I looked at my list. I was like, all right, cool. The only thing I can really do is the podcast. I can do it on Zoom, how we're doing it right now with my camera and get my friends to do it. So that's how it came out. If, if it wasn't in lockdown, would the podcast would have happened? Probably not. Because there was about 50 other things that I wanted to do. But because we was in lockdown, that was the only thing I could actually physically do. Once I started it, I just, I, I fell in love. It was so much. I had some of my friends come on. Even now I've had Ralph, Chantal, I've had old people that I've known for years come on. Um, yeah, it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. It's just something to keep me busy while I'm not working. Because I'm, I'm I'm a very fast thinker. If I'm sitting out for too long doing nothing, I get really agitated. I have to be doing some sort of work or... So yeah, even if I'm writing or whatever, the podcast or something, I'm like, cool. Every once a week or twice a week, I have to edit or I have to get up and go and shoot or I have to call people up to organise it. It just keeps me on my feet. Yeah, it is a great creative outlet. Yeah. So how do you relax? How do you switch off when you've got a day off? Honestly, I do like nothing. It happens a lot when we're on set and, and people will... Especially Ralph, he's like, what do you do? You're 21 years old in the Caribbean, in a villa by yourself. When you say you're chilling, which is my favorite line, they say, what do you do yesterday? I said, oh, I just chilled. Ralph was like, what is chilling? I'm like, bro, I, I don't, I'll literally sit down on my sofa watching YouTube, Netflix or whatever, and just something to eat. And I'll just sit there. And the next thing you know, it's been five hours and I've just been sat on my sofa. And I honestly have a great time doing it. Just anything just to take my mind off of work and just, just, just do nothing. I think sometimes if there's, there's a beauty of just doing nothing for it, especially as an actor. And someone like me in general always wants to be busy and on his feet. I, I, I cherish just sometimes just doing absolutely nothing and thinking about nothing, not, you know, watching TV, thinking about, okay, who am I going to get next on my podcast? Literally just sat down with my mind on nothing and just doing nothing. It's, it's the best way for me to honestly just completely reset. And then the next day I'm like, cool, I had a day of doing nothing. Now I have to fit up that day. What can I have done? What could I have done in that day? I've got to do it now. This makes me more productive. Do you play games? You're a gamer at all? Every now and again, I usually bring my, my PS4 or my PS5 now up to Guadalupe, but I never really play it. Like I'll, every now and again, I might jump on FIFA and because it's a different, while we're out there, it's, I'm, I'll be in the American servers. So I'm always interested to see what the American servers are like compared to the UK servers. So yeah, every now and again, I might, I might jump on FIFA, but I don't know, my spare time, it's, it's, it's depends what I'm in the mood for. I might go out and kick about, play some football. I might be on my PS4. I might, even though it's work related, I do like to write scripts in my spare time and as a hobby even though that might count as work so at the moment to me it's not because i'm not a published writer i don't have any deadlines or anything like that so to me it's, it's not really i'm a writer for the fun of it so it depends what i'm in the mood in sometimes i just go for a walk and just just walk about and just clear my head while i'm listening to some music is writing something you want to get into yeah 100 percent. i've been writing since i was like 10 11 years old one of my dreams was to be on disney channel and i, I don't know at the time i was like the only, the only thing I've been Disney Channel, if I write the show myself, there's no way I'm going to get an audition for it. So I used to just write my own scripts of like Disney Channel shows in it. It's kind of stuck. I do the same now. Like, I'm like, okay, I want to do a movie about this. I don't think I'll get an audition. I'm just writing myself and see what happens in the next two years. You never know, I might commission out and I can put myself as a lead or something like that. So yeah, but like I said, it's a hobby right now. I don't have it like a writing agent. I don't have any deadlines or any commitments. So just fun. But I guarantee the moment it becomes a job, like an official job, it might get a bit stressful, but I'll still love it regardless. Do you think you'd ever like to direct? I ask this question to myself a lot, you know, there's, there's everything that I write 
There's only one thing, one feature from that I've written that I've said that I would have to direct it. It's a personal story about, about growing up in Hackney and the characters are based on me and my family. So it, it would be difficult for anyone else to direct it because they just won't, they won't get it. They won't understand. So that's the only thing I really say that I have to direct it. Everything else that I write, I've always got a director in mind already of who I want to direct. Like I want this person, I want Ryan Coogler to do this. I want Wes Anderson to do this movie. Like I've, So yeah, I don't know. I don't really see myself much as a director. I'm not really good at telling people what to do. Robert, if like We did a directing course when I was in college. We had to direct the year below us. And the one thing we were told is to never to show people how to do it. Like it's never good to, you have to direct them, not demonstrate it. And that's the, way, the only way I know how to direct people is to show them how to do it. So I don't think I'll be a great, great director. So no, even unless it's that script where I say it's personal to me and I kind of, I'm the only person that can direct it, then I'll step in the chair. But if it's anything else, I'd rather get a director that I know is good at the job and they know what they're doing to, to come and do it and make my script better than what it is. Cause I might ruin it by direct, by directing it. Hackney is such a weird place. What I found really weird when I lived there mm. is the disparity between rich and poor is so evident. Like you would have at the bottom of one street, you'll have these like plush apartment blocks. Yeah. And at the other end of the street, the same postcode, the same address is like this rundown council block. Yep. It was just always, because I'm, I'm from Surrey, I grew up in Surrey. Mm. It's always weird. Like just the rich and poor divide is so evident and yeah like you said i don't think a director who's not from hackney would get what it's like to walk around the streets no he wouldn't because even me i grew up in in upper clapton and i also lived in um stone newance in n16 and both of those areas i was exactly what you said the roads that i grew up in are pretty much the same they're still quite run down but then if you just turn a corner you see there's a beautiful lovely coffee shop or a, yeah. uh, a pizza like i don't even know what to call it like a very like posh pizza area and I'm like, that used to be a kebab shop. That used to be a, a laundrette. I'm like, it's really, but that's just the way the world's going right now. But yeah, like I said, if I want to, the script that I wrote, it's, it's, a, it's a period piece of like based on like 2008. So if I get a director that doesn't know 2008 happening, he won't know how to direct the movie. So only someone that really, that not even grew up in the area that lived there at the time. And they used to walk on the street every single day to go to school like I used to. They'd be the only one that can really understand how to direct a movie based in that area. Otherwise you just think it's, Oh yeah, you know, it's I know Hackney, but it's not that happy that you know how it is. It's Hackney ten years ago, which is a completely different Hackney than what it is now. Yeah, I was around there from about two thousand four till about two thousand eight. Okay, so, yeah. Oddly, we moved back because I got a new job, and it was pain in the ass to travel from Dalston to Croydon, and then they brought in the they brought <laughs> in the overground as soon as we moved. And oh, like, okay, half an hour. But they, yeah, that wasn't there then. But yeah, it's, such, it's just such a weird area. I imagine it's what's been like nearly twenty years since since I moved away from there. So imagine it's changed a lot. It's, I loved it growing up there. Like it was, it, it's it's happening like this. It's, it's it's East London. Like it's always going to be dangerous. There's always a lot of things going on. Like I wasn't allowed to go in the all part. I, I was from I'm from E5 and from Upper Clapton. So mm. when you have the uh, there's a, the Clapton Pond roundabout. If you go one way, you go towards Stony and If you go one way, it's got towards Hackney Central Homerton. Go to one way is towards Leytonstone and Bethnal Green. If you go this way, is towards Stamford Hill, where I grew up. I was only allowed to go down certain exits of the roundabouts. So I could go down to Stone Newington because that's where I lived at the time. And when I lived in Upper Clapton, so that was fine. I can go towards like, the Homerton area because I used to go to Hackney Central to get my hair cut to go towards Dawson. And I got family lives in Homerton. I was never allowed to go down the Leytonstone roundabout area. My mum was like, don't ever in your life think about going down the area. And if you do, turn right back or get on a bus. So, yeah. It was it was a dangerous time growing up. It was really dangerous, but luckily 
from the a young, 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 young age. My mum put me in the right path during this, even not even doing performing arts, I was doing football as well at the same time. So I just had something else to do on on a day off or on a weekend or after school rather than hanging around on the estate, getting up to God knows what. I already had something else to keep me on track, which which I was lucky. You know, a lot of kids had that at that young age. But by the time they kind of found that, it was too late. It was way too late. But yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that my mum kind of sent me in the right direction. Yeah, you had something to focus your energy on. Exactly. Whenever I used to tell people I lived in Hackney, they were like, oh, it's a bit stodgy in it. And then, <laughs> no, I only ever had one incident when I was there. And it was the day before we moved back to Surrey. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> it was like a sign. It was a, it was a sign. This guy, this guy wanted to get my wallet. And I was like, no, fuck off. And he was like, right, if I ever see you around there again, you're dead. And I was like, all right. It's good to know, mate. I'm going to see you. It's good to know. Have fun look it. So can you tease us with any podcast guests you've got coming up? That's a good question. You know, I, I work in advance. So when I, when I was filming the Paradise in October, November, I was making calls to people knowing that I was going to be back in at the end of the year. So a lot of the people that I pulled up around that time have kind of run out of them now. So now it's me contacting new people. Yeah. Um, one, person, one person that I haven't got on yet is my my friend Tommy, Tommy Adder, who plays the Marcus East, um, in Hollyoaks. Oh, yeah. He's one of the people that I called up back then. I've been meaning to get him on, but his schedule, it just, it just did not match it. Because Hollyoaks, is, they have a busy, busy filming schedule. And I think they had to say... soap opera. Yeah, that's soap opera. Yeah, exactly. And I think they had to delay because they had heavy snow up there, so they had to push things back. So yeah, so he, he I'm meaning to get him on just whenever, whenever his schedule matches up. So yeah, that's really the only person I know that's, that's kind of guaranteed that I can teach because everyone else, I haven't really asked them yet. So I don't know, but the people that I have in mind are some brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guests that I've, that I've been in town on Netflix movies and, and whatnot. There's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people that I need to get on. you got to get Don on. Come on. It's yes, that's the other person I have to get on too. And that I don't, I don't, to be honest, I don't know why it happened, you know. He was meant, I meant to get him and Ralph on around the road. I had, I had Ginny and I've had Ralph this year. Yeah. And Don was, that's a, you just reminded me, I actually don't know why I organized that. So I'll get on to that. She seems to be finished up with this. On left and right here. I mean, yeah, for real. There we go. I'm trying to get an internet campaign started to get him cast as M in the next Bond films. <laughs> no, I think, I think it would be incredible in that role. That would be brilliant. Because that's there's a lot of that going around, a lot of like dream casting going around for the new Bond films. And I think he should be in a lot of people's like top 10 to, to, to be M because that would be just knowing Don and even. Maybe him playing someone, but it's just being around him, just talking normally, it would work. It would be brilliant. It would work. Do you think you'd ever like to play Bond? I would love to. I think I'm. It depends when. I think right now I'm. I'm too. I'm too young. Way too young. I think even um, like because Michael Ward just worked with Sam Mendes, um, Empire of Light, and people are saying he should be the next Bond. And I think even he said like I'm too young, and I think he's like five years older than me. So I'm like, okay, well I'm definitely too too young. If he thinks he's too young, then I'm. I'm up to him. But yeah, if if if, the, if it's still around hopefully it is around and time i'll be pulled up and 100 what i'm trying to do honestly is to write my own like james bond character that can be passed around between i don't know young black actors or whatever just to write a whole new james bond type of character that can just be passed along from generations to generations i think would be sick i think we're, we're due for like a another james bond not even like a black james bond it's just an, another kind of james bond character that can be yeah. passed down i think it's happening with like you know characters like it's it's for people like Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, and James Bond, where like, there's never one set person. They can all be passed around from actor to actor. I, I kind of want to write my own version of it. Like, let's be thrown around between any race, black, white, Asian, or whatever, just any actor that I should just write for this character. So yeah, if I don't play James Bond first, 
I'll do that. I'll do, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do that. Would you play the role yourself and then hand it? Oh yeah, I'll probably, probably kickstart it. Better be selfish and then pick the next the um, assessor. I'll probably do it like that. I'll pick who's next, and that person can pick who's next, and it kind of becomes like a, a sensei and a master kind of thing. Once they figure out who is yeah. that, they then they can pass it pass it down. I think you're right. There is room for a new a new version of that because they're always trying to modernize Bond. And my thought was always they should take it back to the sixties. And how would we remember? But I think the problem there is that the Bond movies take so much in like product placement and stuff like that. Yeah, so cars and Aston Martin, the kind of stuff. Yeah, if, you, if you're making it in the sixties, what are you going to sell to people? Yeah, it's, they'll use a lot of money because a lot of adverts something they can't do. So you yeah. can So what's next for you? Are you off to the Caribbean again soon? That's a good question. We don't, we don't really know. If, if around this kind of time, we're kind of just like, yeah, we're just waiting for the waiting for the call kind of to give us the, the green light when things are getting started. So until we do get that call, I'm kind of just just chilling, waiting for any other call to come around. But just kind of do do me doing podcasts, writing, doing my own little things on the side, just just chilling. Because when that when that call does come, whatever it is, whether it's Devin Prados or any other film, once it does get started, that's you for like the next four, five, six, seven, whatever months and. You have to commit to that. So, yeah, my mind kind of is, it's never really, until I get that cool one and go, okay, it's time to start getting ready to prep into my next role or whatever. I'm never really thinking about it. I kind of need my agent to think about that, that kind of stuff. And I'm just kind of like, game, hey, man, I'm a shilling because I know when it does come, it's going to be hectic and it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah. I've got to ask, what was it like playing Simba on stage? Oh, that to this day is one of the best roles I've, I've ever done in, in my career because it was just, it was so much fun. I did it for a year. But even before that, you have to do six. The audition process is six months long. It's a thing called Cub School. And you have to, six months or six weeks? No, six months, six weeks is way too short. We had those like stages where they'll let some kids go, then the, the group will get smaller and smaller. And basically, you learn the show. You're in a little studio in Silver Young every Friday. You learn the show from start to finish, like everything in the studio, to the point where you only need about two weeks worth of tech rehearsals because you, all you want to do is just bring it onto the stage and learn the technical elements of it all that kind of stuff but it was just so much it was so much fun with like I don't know how many kids there were at the time it was loads of us and but before the end it would get down to be like six and then only four of you would get the part but when you get let go a lot of the kids that got let go didn't really care because they really had their fun and their parents probably were really pissed off but the kids were like ah, whatever like I had my fun and then when you get to the show it's exactly the same because you can't do every single performance so let's say I performed the uh, matinee show then whoever's in the my there'll be so basically there'll be I want to say yeah four Simbas and four Nalas and there'll be two teams I believe yeah no eight sorry eight and whatever you can do the math but yeah and my day will be it'll be me and another Simba and my Nala and another Nala in the building at the time so if something goes wrong with that Simba I have to get changed in one on stage but you literally just sat in the dressing room at the top of the Lyceum just messing about. Do whatever, just but on your iPads, watching TV. The chaperones were lovely as well, and um, we're just coming, just having fun. Again, you're getting paid to do this, and you're putting in front of thousands of people pretty much almost every single day. But putting the show wasn't too difficult. Like, I hated singing and dancing, but it wasn't that much singing and dancing until there was a lot of acting. The mm. costume was sick, the makeup was sick, the crew, the like, everything was it was so much, so much fun. I don't think I've ever had a stage experience quite like it. Well, I like I love every element of it. There's been some shows I'm like, ah, this was too hard. That was difficult. I hated this person. I didn't like this crew member because they didn't like me, whatever. But Lion King was the one show where I was like, every single element of it was 10 out of 10. Enough. I wouldn't change a single thing. That's brilliant. It's a great show. I've seen it. And I remember when I heard they were doing it, I was like, really? How's that going to work? But yeah. spectacularly, it turned Amazing. Out. It's amazing. 
you think you'll get back to the theatre? I want to. I really want to. I really want to. It's um, it's a tricky one because because I haven't done it in so long. It just depends where like where can I perform. Like the last thing I did, the last like big performance there was Bugsy Malone, which was like twenty fifteen. I don't know enough when it was. I was like around thirteen years old, so it's almost going to be ten years since I did like a proper big scale for um production. The last like I did like a little showcase that I did with that um Gary Davy saw me in for for small acts. That was like yeah, at a bunker theater, which I think sees. I don't think it's even a hundred people, but it was really, really small. It didn't really feel like I was doing a, a show. It was like almost like a studio performance. So I don't really count that. So it just depends what I can do. Like I wouldn't want to jump straight from the national, I mean, take on to national after doing almost not 10 years of performing. Like I would, I'd piss myself. I wouldn't know what to do. So yeah, it doesn't depend where, where I fit in, but yeah, 100%. That's, I haven't really, when I thought to my, I was supposed to my agent a long time, I didn't feel. When, when I first signed, I think I'd gone and said to him, yeah, maybe, but it wasn't in my focus. I wanted to do like movies and TV shows. So. I don't think he'd be really looking for theatre for me because I told him not to. So, yeah, I might mean, give him a call saying, you know what, I want to get back into it, but it has to be right. I can't just jump, like I said, straight out to the National or um, the Apollo or something like that. I can't. I don't know what to do. I don't know how my body would even work in that setting anymore because it's been almost 10 years. So I have to gradually get myself into it. But, yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, it's such a grueling schedule as well, the theatre the theater world. That too, I haven't done theatre as an adult before. I wasn't always done it as a kid, so I don't do every single day. I've always had taken a break. So that's another thing. I, I, I'd be doing every single day now, which I've never done before. So yeah, it, I'd, have to, I'd have to ease myself into it little by little until I'm ready to go into the national or some one of them stages. All right, Taj, I really enjoyed our chat. I'm going to let you get on. Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I want to tell people where they can find your podcast and find you online. Yeah, so my, my podcast, The Table Read, will be on my YouTube channel, Taj De Niro. That's kind of where that goes or anything outside us decide to film and edit that will be all there. Then you can find me mostly on Instagram, I'd say, at Taj Miles or Twitter at Taj D Miles, but Twitter at your own risk because that's more when I just run about football. So yeah, I've seen not yeah, if you're not a football fan, don't don't bother. I don't really talk. There's not much Devin Pride I talk on my Twitter. That's more on my, on my Instagram. So at your own risk. If you want a football talk, go ahead. But yeah, that's a thing where I am. I saw you go on a real Arsenal round the other day. Always a hard stand up. All my, my family's asking, so that's just me. What well, I don't want to say to the person that's going to the Lord, oh, these bloody Arsenal fans, yeah, I have to. It's rare that, yeah, that you grew up where you did and you're not an Arsenal fan. Fun fact is, I was technically born an Arsenal fan because my brother is a huge Arsenal fan and at the time my mum was. So just by default, I was born an Arsenal fan. Now, there's pictures of me in an Arsenal top that I'm hoping never resurface. <laughs> never. That's my, that's my like, version of getting cancelled, just having pictures of me in an Arsenal top. I'll, I'll go crazy. That'll be like a nightmare for me. But once I got old enough to really understand football, that's when I picked my team. I think it was Ronaldo. I looked at Ronaldo. I was like, oh my God, like, the skills, the boots, the hair, everything. I was like, yeah, that's that's who does he play for? I want to support him. So very, as soon as I started to deep football, then I realized Arsenal was not a good fit. Right now, it's kind of backfiring. But for years before then, it was a great choice. They were awful. But yeah. now, yeah, they've they, they got a lot of chat because they're going to win the league or whatever, blah, 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 whatever. <laughs> Do you think England will ever win the cup again? Depends who the manager is, mate. It, 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 it depends. I mean, Southgate, Southgate is cool, I guess. I mean, you look at the track record, you kind of, it's hard to suck him. Like, what? Euros final, World Cup semi final, World Cup quarter final. Like, any other manager, you'd say, why would you sack him? Because that's a great track record. But when you watch 90 minutes of his football, you just see he, he's not really the right person. Like, I've always said, we watched the Euros in um, in Guadeloupe. We watched it in a, in a bar around the corner from set. Um, so it was all of us, like, a whole crew, me, Ralph, I told Don, everyone watching the final. And me and Ralph were saying, like, when we scored after three minutes, me and Ralph were like, what the hell is going on? Like, what, what do you mean we scored in three? I mean, like, right, it's half time and it's still 1-0. 
But then we're like, why do I feel like they're going to score any second now? Like, I don't think that they look more like it's going than us. I said, bro, it's because we scored and he just automatically parted the bus. I was like, why would you, why would you do that? And he should have scored in the first three minutes. You're at Wembley too. The crowd's hyped. Everyone's jumping, get another goal. But it's like he got, it's like he, he, he got scared and said, you know what? Just, just everyone sit back. I don't want to just see the goal. And in my opinion, I lost us the final. And, and he's done it. Every, ever since, even against France in the World Cup, he kind of just kind of got a bit scared and sat back. Rather than knowing who he's got, you've got Saka, Rashford, Kane, Foden, you've got all these players that can make it happen. But for some reason, you're just worried about your defence. You need to trust your attack a bit more. And he benches them so much. It's like... That's another story. I don't even want to get into that because he's kind of a rant about Rashford, um, about his commitment to the team, even though, I mean, he probably wasn't injured, but as a United, I don't care, man. I'd rather be a club over country any day. But he said something about commitment, even though Rashford, he skipped shoulder surgery before the Euros because he wanted to play for his club. Then he didn't play until you put him on at the end of the final for the Mr. Penalty. Then even then, he was the top goal scorer in the World Cup. And you only started him once. And I'm like, bro, how can you talk about commitment if you're benching people like him? Why would he want to play for you? Yeah, it depends. It depends. I'd, I'd happily get someone like, I don't know, Mourinho or someone for the engineering team. I don't know. Someone that's got a bit of attitude and, and can just kind of put their foot down and say, this is what I want to do. Forget what the fans want. This is who I want to play. I don't, I don't know. It's a tricky job being an England manager because... I wouldn't want it. I would love that job. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want it either, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't even know if I want to, honestly. I don't know. Yeah. All right, mate. Thanks so much. Thank you, mate. It's a pleasure. Okay. How great was that? I'd just like to thank Taj once again for being so generous with his time. Sorry, I had to cut that one short, guys. I've just had hip surgery, so I was getting to the limits of what my pain would allow me to do. Hopefully, this podcast will be back in full by the end of April. Okay. Thanks for listening.